time just cl clipped over to seven o'clock here, so it's time for us to begin. I welcome all of you here to class tonight. I really appreciate you being here so that I have some people to talk to rather than just the walls and the ceiling. We have so many people, I'm sure, that are out traveling, and we wish them all a safe journey to and from their destination. And I hope that the Lord blesses all of you with a very happy Thanksgiving tomorrow. Our lesson tonight is number 11 in this series on the strategies of Satan. And I'm going to begin tonight with a, an axiom. That is a statement that is supposed to be self-evidently true. And it's accepted without proof. But here it is. Anything good comes from God. And anything evil or bad comes from Satan. There's a corollary to that axiom. Satan often takes the good that comes from God and corrupts it to make it evil. And to illustrate, I'll use an analogy. Suppose that someone made you a wholesome, delicious sandwich when you were very, very hungry but the person who brought it to you slipped something inside that was somewhat poisonous. What was made to be good has been corrupted and made harmful by someone who was evil with a, with a, uh, a wicked purpose. It's easy to conclude that this act, which is in the human sphere, has the influence of Satan in it. A person would have to be under an evil influence to do a thing like that. There are many things that God put into this world for a good purpose, but by the influence of Satan, they've been diverted to a sinful use. I'll give three easy examples. Alcohol, free will, and radioactivity. Alcohol can be used to disinfect in medicine and so forth. Or you can turn it up and drink it and poison yourself. Free will can be used to choose the way to God through Christ Jesus. Or it can be used to choose the way of sin and corruption. Radioactivity can be used to treat cancer and do many other good things or can be used to put in the warhead of a rocket to wipe out an entire metropolis. The very idea that I'm speaking of here is present in the statement by Paul in Romans 14 and verse 16. Do not let what is a good thing for you be evil spoken of. This was written to a church who had some people in it who were making laws concerning food and trying to bind them upon the whole church. Such food laws, as you know, were a part of the Mosaic law and therefore was required of the Jews. And it had to be observed by them to please God. But those laws are omitted from the gospel and therefore, they do not obligate Christians. Jesus made this clear in Mark 
7, verses 18 and 19, where he said, Whatever goes into the man from the outside <clears throat> cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach. The text then adds parenthetically, thus he declared all foods clean. So we see that something that was good and given by God was arbitrarily restricted by certain people and turned into a matter of division and contention among Christians. And Paul spent a lot of time in the Roman letter and also in Corinthians some dealing with that. Therefore, again we see that the influence of Satan, though we cannot see it, was present in that case and was very real. Whenever something good from God is perverted and made bad, evil, Satan is behind it. Did you notice a moment ago that I used the word division? Well, folks, that is the subject of our lesson for tonight. One of the prime strategies that Satan uses to, to subvert people and ruin the work of God is division. Before we go further with this subject, though, I want to point out that there is both good division and bad division. The good division is the type that fits into God's order of things to make the things on this earth good for his creatures. Thus, in Genesis chapter 1, God divided light and darkness into day and night. He divided the chaos on earth into the continents for people to live on and the seas for fish to be in. He divided living things into the plant kingdom, we call it, and the animal kingdom. Then he divided the animals into a, a great number of different species. God divided humans into male and female, each with different natures and roles in life. Although there's some people today that are trying to say, let's erase that division. But he divided their original domains of living, that is the first people, into the protection inside the Garden of Eden and whatever dangers were in the world outside of the Garden of Eden. All these divisions as God made them were good and meaningful for human life. It'd take far too much time now to explain it but that's not the subject of our lesson tonight anyway, not good division. God brings about good division to correct a trend toward evil among people. Sometimes he does that, not always, but sometimes. This was the case, for example, and I believe it's um, Genesis 10 or 11, when he divided people by language in order to stop the building of the Tower of Babel. The purpose of that tower is stated in Genesis 11, verse 4. And they, the people building it, they said, Come, let us build, us, build for ourselves a city and a tower that will reach into heaven, and let us make ourselves a name. The motivation behind that project 
was very clearly pride. It was what they could do of their own will and their own effort. In Proverbs verse 6, we're told that God hates haughty eyes. That's a way of saying pride. And he hates a heart that devises wicked plans. Notice the emphasis on the pronouns in that verse. Us, ourselves, make a name for ourselves. Those are clearly expressions of pride. What they could do as an organized group of people with no reference to God at all. And notice also there in verse 6, this is of Genesis 11, what God said. He said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they begin to do. And now nothing they purpose to do will be impossible to them. So God put an end to their work. How? He changed their languages. They came to work one day and, and they were speaking various tongues. They couldn't understand each other. Then verse 8 reports that the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so God divided the human race into several different um, progressions of people that became nations. It seems that Satan watched all of that going on and thought, hey, if God can achieve his purposes in dividing or in causing division, I can do the same thing. I can reach mine that way. And he soon began to use division among people. First among the Jews, and then later on among Christians to cause division and hate and, and weakness and to stop the progress of work and good with respect to God. The worst division is that in which God's people are separated from him. And that's the result of the sin that Satan manipulates people to adopt. That's the real sin we're talking about tonight. This has been his effort among us from the very beginning. To separate man from God, I guess one of the first things he did was to use idolatry. He seduced people to think there are other gods than the one true living God and that people ought to worship the gods of their own imagination and then make visual images of them fashioning gods from wood and stone and metal into various forms. And some of those have survived or in museums around the world. Such thinking was certainly not from God, for that would have been God opposing himself. He would never set up other gods that are false to worship in opposition to him. So it was definitely from Satan. And Revelation 9 and verse 20 makes that very clear. That text stated how God had sent plagues, or would now in the future send plagues, to make some men die for their sins, and by that to warn the rest of them who survived that they had better repent. It uses third and two-thirds there. 
Verse 20 says that the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues that God sent, notice this, did not repent of the work of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. From earliest times, Satan has found it very easy to divert people from God by seducing them into false worship. And the result is what we see today in the division of people even who profess Christ into hundreds of opposing groups. And you even see it in a local city where, like ours, where some group will pull out of a congregation, go over yonder somewhere, usually give themselves another name that not church of anything, just some name, and there we are, greater division. After Satan's organization into a kingdom, its first three kings, as you remember, were Saul and David and Solomon. When Solomon died, the nation divided into two smaller kingdoms, Israel up in the north that had 10 tribes and Judah down in the south that had two tribes. There were various forces at work in Israel that brought that division about. And one was what I've been talking about, the worship of idols. Israel had already for some generations been increasingly worshiping Baal, but Judah had for the most part remained faithful to Jehovah, or as they probably pronounced it back then, Yahweh. To strengthen the division, the first king of the northern kingdom was named Jeroboam, and he built a shrine at Bethel just a few miles above the border with Israel, and he set up a golden calf there to worship, for the people to worship. Rather than going down to Jerusalem, which was only about 15 or so miles, 20 maybe, to worship the true God in the temple that Solomon had built for him. Now Jeroboam did this before human eyes, but the one who was driving him to do it was invisible. It was Satan. But he was very real and very powerful in the motivation, just as he is today. This false worship at Bethel helped keep God's people separated, divided, for about the next 200 years. The report of Jeroboam's motivation and activity is explained in 1 Kings 12, verses 15 through 33, which I encourage you to read on your own. It would take up too much time now to read that verse by verse. The source of division continued until the Assyrians came and overthrew the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722 B.C. And they destroyed that shrine at Bethel. And they carted up that very expensive golden calf and took it off to Nineveh. Satan also uses other means to separate men from God. And of course, the major one is sin. This is really a category. There isn't just one sin. There is a whole multitude of sins that are specific. We're told in 1 John 3 verse 4 using the King James, whoever commits sin also transgresses the law. 
For sin is the transgression of the law. The law for Christians is the gospel, and any violation of its teaching is sin. The gospel of Christ includes many specifics, as you know, and to disregard any of those specifics is a sin. Many, many Christians do not know all those specifics. And it seems it's becoming the situation that more and more Christians know, only a very few of them, but Satan knows them all. And he finds it very easily to lure the poorly taught Christians into sins that they don't even know about. They're doing things that are sin and do not know that it's sin. And when any of them are committed, that disciple is separated from God. Brethren, sin separates you from God. How do we know that it does? Is that Burton Whited making up some kind of a uh, pronouncement here? No, not at all. It doesn't take a host of sins to make the division. So many cases in the Bible show very decisively that only one sin will separate you from God. Just one. I'm going to cite some of them. But listen to this, Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have made a division between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Notice what it says. Your iniquities, that sin, have made a separation between you and your God. Sin comes between any of us and our God when we disobey Him. When you sin, whether it's deliberate, careless, or in ignorance, that is still a sin, and it comes between you and your God. Satan's purpose is always to separate man from God, and he's busy with me and you and all of us to accomplish that. Because when you sin and are separated from God, Satan claims you. You've stepped over into his kingdom. His kingdom is that of sin. When you sin, you become uh, his. He claims you. Also, the Bible teaches us that when you sin, you become a slave of sin and then a slave of Satan. None of us wants to be a slave, but when you sin, it makes you a slave. How do I know that? Romans 6.16. It says that clearly. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin that results in death or of obedience that results in righteousness, and I might add eternal life. One sin evicted Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, just one. One sin blocked Moses from entering the Promised Land, just one. One sin led to the execution of Achan and all of his family at Gilgal. You'll read that in uh, Joshua 7, verses 16 through 26. Just one sin in each case. 
We can't minimize and say, oh, one sin, that's just one little sin. That doesn't make much difference. Folks, it makes all the difference in eternity if you don't get it removed. And there's a way to do that, of course. I'm concerned that we in the church who teach and preach may be failing in making it very clear to the people what specific behaviors and attitudes are sin. The sermons we hear, the lessons we hear, they're good. They're out of the scriptures. But they're not addressing in so many cases specific sins and behaviors. We fear to do that. When I say we, I mean in general. Why do we fear it? Folks, we're living in a society now where it is considered offensive even to use the word sin or to say that someone is sinning or that someone is a sinner. I have some articles that I've clipped out of public media that has addressed that during the past some years. That's one reason we don't get down the specifics. Another reason is it'll drive people away. If we were to teach regularly, specifically, what behaviors and attitudes and mannerisms are sin, people would start going to a church across town that doesn't do that. That tells you every Sunday, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay, let's be happy. We want everyone, always, to leave church feeling good, happy, glad that they've come. And folks, that's good. That's the way we really want it to be. That's exactly how we want people to feel when they leave the church. That is the way it should be. But folks, there's another side to it. When people come with sin in their lives and they're not told and it's sin, but they're told, you know, that everything is good and fine and, and they leave the, 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 the building and do not know the sin that is in their lives and separating them from God because they have not had it taught to them and made clear, they're leaving with a smile on their face and a false sense of security without really a reason for being happy. You can't really be fundamentally happy when you're not with God, when you're separated from God by sins. We need to know what sin is. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves. Turn your eyes around backward and look into your life. Look honestly, objectively, to see the sin that's there. And folks, there's sin in my life and sin in your life that comes every day. It intrudes. It's a never-ending task to look for it, to find it, to repent of it. Isaiah didn't make his audience very happy when he said, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. No audience wants to hear that. And then your sins have caused God to hide his face from you so that he does not hear. We don't want anybody to tell us God's hiding his face from you because of this, this, and this. Don't tell me those things. I want God to be looking at me. In fact, in the remainder of Isaiah 59, the prophet went on to specify, he did it, to specify the sins that the people were committing and describing their nature. 
But those sins were leading them to destruction. That's where sin always leads you. It was critical that they found out what those sins were and faced up to them and repented. In his several New Testament epistles, Paul put his welcome and his acceptance on the line when he came to a place, he put it at serious risk because Paul did not hold back from specifying sin and calling on people to repent. Sin separates you from God. To keep them happy by saying, folks, you're good people, all is well. Don't worry about anything. That was foolish. When sin was in their lives and God was not in their lives because of sin. Folks, we who preach and teach may not be dealing with sin specifically and leaving people in the dark. And when that's the case, we're playing the cards that Satan deals to us. And he does not deal us good cards, but bad ones. The ones that will separate you from God and cause you to win what life is all about, cause you rather to lose what life is all about. It's always been Satan's chief desire and effort to separate man from God. And he does that by the sins that he entices us to commit, usually by telling us they're not sins and making us think they're not sins. They're okay. It's what everybody else is doing. He has no trouble doing that when we have not been taught and convinced this behavior is a sin. This habit is a sin. This kind of speech is a sin. This kind of dress is a sin. This kind of behavior is a sin. Now let's look at a couple of cases where Satan used the sin of division to, dis to disturb and then destroy the important work of God. One of these is biblical. The one with which I'll end the lesson is in more recent times. Paul came to the city of Corinth on his second missionary journey and he founded a church there. He was soon joined by Silas and Timothy to help him and folks together, they converted a lot of people in Corinth. And once the church was established there, they worked to strengthen it. And they remained a year and a half and did a great job. What had they done? They had invaded Satan's territory. It belonged completely to, to Satan before Paul got to Corinth. And with the gospel, they had freed many of Satan's servants. And they had separated them from the power of sin by which Satan was controlling them and ruling them. He tried to stop the work that Paul was doing there while he was involved in it, but he failed. When he did, he turned to the local Jewish synagogue because they repeatedly yielded to his uh, direction. And the Jews later served Satan in exactly the same way in the city of Smyrna. You remember, Christ wrote a letter to them through John in, in Revelation chapter 2. And there in verse 9, he plainly called the synagogue in Smyrna a synagogue of Satan. They called themselves the synagogue of God. He said, no, you're not. 
you're the synagogue of Satan. The Jews in Corinth accused Paul with charging men to worship God contrary to the law, Acts 18, 13. And they took him before the seat of the Roman proconsul Gallio. But when that man heard the charge that the Jews brought, he threw the case out of court and told the Jews he wasn't interested in their law and he had them evicted. So that ploy of Satan failed. When it did, he merely bided his time until Paul left Corinth. Paul had too much of the spirit working in him for Satan to deal with it. So then Satan reached down into his box of strategies. This is the 10th night in this series. We've talked about one after the other, a strategy of Satan. Which one did he pull out to try to ruin the church in Corinth? Division, what we're talking about tonight. And folks, the Corinthian Christians fell for it, just like a hungry bass goes for a prize-winning lure out on the lake. And the results are recorded in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 11, where Paul wrote, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by the people of glory, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this. Some of you are saying, I'm of Paul. Others, I'm of Cephas. Others, I of Apollos. And some even, I'm of Christ. They were divided at least into four parties and Paul then asked the question, has Christ been divided there? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course, the answer to those questions were no. It was the Corinthians who were arguing over who was the best leader in the church. But it was the words that came from Satan's influence upon them. Something similar is found in the 13th chapter of Revelation, there John saw a beast rise up from the earth. And it says of this beast, he looked like a lamb, an innocent, beautiful, simple, harmless looking lamb. But when that thing spoke, it was the voice of the dragon. The beast from the earth there is a symbol for false religion. It disguised itself to look and sound like a lamb of God, but when it spoke, it betrayed its true character. It spoke the words of Satan, the words of the old dragon, and it was the agent to lead men into sin under the name of religion, and when it did, it separated them from God. The spirit of Satan had infiltrated the minds of the Corinthian brethren, and it influenced them to argue over who their leader was. And when they divided into competing parties, Satan began to reclaim that church to himself. And he went a pretty good way with it. Folks, when a church divides itself into groups that oppose each other and debate each other, there's one thing you can be sure of. Satan is present. And he is successfully undermining the unity and the welfare and the good effect of that congregation. Seldom, though, has this reality bothered Christians. Because sadly, one of the most characteristic things has been the division of congregations after congregation after congregation into smaller and smaller groups. 
Now in the latter part of this lesson, we're going to turn from the Bible to a modern case of a church being seriously divided and then wrecked by a highly influential man who got off track and began to preach a false doctrine. And be reminded, false teaching is sin. Whoever is doing it, it's still sin if it's false. Here it goes. Pretty local. The Church of Christ began in Nashville, Tennessee in August of 18 and 27 when Philip S. Fall, who was the minister of the Baptist Church in Nashville, led 218 of its members with him to withdraw from the Baptist in order to become a restored church like the original in the book of Acts under the apostles. Philip Fall led them wonderfully for four years till 1831. And folks, the church grew almost daily. Then when he left for the next 10 years, they didn't have a preacher. But the church just kept right on growing and prospering. Why? It had some excellent elders, men of wisdom and energy and hard work. And they were carrying the work on. But by 18 and 44, the membership had gotten up to 550. And that was big for Nashville then. Nashville was just a little place back then. And they decided, well, it is time for a full-time minister. So they persuaded a man by the name of Jesse Ferguson to come down from Kentucky and to take the position. And that was a wonderful decision at that time. From the beginning, Ferguson's ministry was very, very successful. The church grew steadily, both in number and influence, first of all throughout Nashville, then Davidson County, then all of Middle Tennessee, then the state of Tennessee, and even states beyond that one church in Nashville. Ferguson was only 26 years old. He was eloquent. He could spellbind an audience with his speaking. He was brilliant. He had a magnificent personality. To know him was to love him and to, to want to be with him. And it sure didn't hurt that he was an extremely good-looking man. Only 26, young, athletic, vivacious, good-looking. He quickly became the most preacher of any, I mean the most popular preacher of any kind in Nashville. And then in Tennessee. And he was quickly reputed to be the best preacher south of the Ohio River down to the Gulf. The church in Nashville rapidly outgrew its building. And in 1852, they erected a new one downtown on Cherry Street. You know where Cherry Street is in Nashville? It's 4th Avenue now, where all those big buildings are. This was a stone building cut out of uh, cut stone. It had a spire that went 150 feet into the air. It had a large gas-lit chandelier and was one of only about four buildings in Nashville that had gaslight at that time. It had 150 white polished walnut pews. It had a seating capacity of 1,200 and every Sunday it was packed. 
And it was by far the biggest church in Nashville, both in attendance and in the size of that building. Probably only the Capitol building was bigger and better at that time. In fact, it was the biggest ch church number-wise in the whole state of Tennessee. Ferguson and the Nashville Church of Christ became famous throughout the whole South. Everything was going fantastic, and then something bad happened. When all was going great, Ferguson began to teach a false doctrine that he picked up from some journals from New England, universalism. That's the doctrine that no human being will ever be saved that those who die out of Christ in sin will have a second chance in the, in the uh, place between uh, this life and the resurrection, and there they would be saved, and everybody would be saved. This false doctrine was immediately opposed by those good elders of that church, one of whom was David Lipscomb. And they had some support from, Al from Alexander Campbell up in uh, Bethany, Virginia, who was highly influential at that time. They managed to get Ferguson to resign in June of 1856, and then the church split. It bitterly divided. Ferguson, you see, wouldn't give up. He pronounced himself an independent preacher, and he began to preach in a large theater building in Nashville. And most of the congregation left the National Church of Christ and went with him. You see, they were more interested in Ferguson as a man, his good looking, his good speech, his being everywhere as he talked with high energy and all that. That's what they were interested in more than the truth. The faithful remnant, and it wasn't too much more than a handful, remained in that big gigantic building they had built for one year. In 1857, it burned to the ground in a huge fire. And everybody in Nashville believed it was a case of arson that someone from Ferguson's church come over there and burned it down. But Ferguson even fell out of favor finally with those people. He left Nashville, he slipped quickly into obscurity, and he died almost anonymously in 1871, I think it was in Missouri. His following in Nashville drifted into denominations as it usually happens when churches split. Many Christians do that. Some just quit attending church at all. The attendance of that church, which had been 700, when Ferguson went into error, had dropped to a mere 60. By division and hatred, the Nashville Church of Christ was wrecked and it did not recover for more than 50 years till up after the year 1900. Its phenomenal growth in the 1950s and its destruction, I mean in the 1940s and its destruction in the 1850s was due to the same man, Jesse B. Ferguson. The church was ruined for half a century in Nashville by bitter division, which was the result of a false doctrine taught by a wildly popular, charismatic, good-looking, dynamic, moving-everywhere preacher. Satan wasn't visible in Nashville through all of that, but he was really there. He was busy at work engineering all that. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not the God of division, of confusion, but of peace. When churches are torn apart by confusion for whatever cause, it's not the work of God. It's the work of Satan using his tool of division. One church historian has put it this way, and it's where I got a lot of this information from. During the defection and collapse of the Nashville church, hell was having a field day. Souls were lost, many of them, by that bitterness and hatred that was engendered. Inevitably, the result that follows when churches divide. Christians play right into the devil's hands when they cannot remain unified and peaceful in brotherly love, forgiveness, and most of all, the management of their own egos. Thank you for being a wonderful audience tonight.